He is risen, church. Yes, he is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24 as we read some of the most wonderful words ever written. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seats and right underneath the seat in front of you. And you can turn uh, to page 1642 as we read from Luke chapter 24 verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Today we are finishing a series that we have been going through for almost two months titled Better Than Ever. And we have been focusing on how Jesus is better than anything that came before him and anything that has come since him. As we walked through the book of Hebrews, we looked at how Jesus is better than Moses and better than angels, how he offers a better rest, how he is a better high priest, how he was a better sacrifice offered on our behalf, and how he is a better king than ever. Today, we focus on how Jesus was even better than death, greater and stronger and superior to death. Next week, we kick off a new series titled All the Feels. It's going to feel a lot different as we look at human emotion, particularly how man interacts with God in the book of Psalms and how God invites us to bring all of our emotions, all of our feelings, even the ones that aren't so pretty, to him in our relationship with him. So I encourage you, every single one of you, to be back here next Sunday as we launch that new series. But today, we are focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and particularly how the resurrection changes everything. You're going to hear that phrase a lot today because it's true. You see, without the resurrection, there would be no new covenant. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. It wouldn't be good news without the resurrection. With no resurrection, there would probably be no New Testament. They wouldn't have bothered to write it down if he had stayed in the tomb. And without the resurrection, there would be no hope. Just look at how hopeless and look at the level of despair that there was from Friday night to Sunday morning. You see, without the resurrection, there's no redemption. Without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness. There's no healing. There's no new life. Perhaps that's why Paul David Tripp has said that the resurrection is meant to be the lens or the window through which we view all of life. Think about it. Because everything changes when you view it through the window of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, everything has hope when you view it through 
the lens of the resurrection, everything can be forgiven. Everything can be healed. Because of the resurrection, everything can be redeemed and everything can be made new. And that is why we celebrate Easter. That is why we rejoice and that is why we praise his wonderful name. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. If you have one of those blue hardcover Bibles, it's page 1789. And this is a letter that a follower of Christ wrote to a church that he had been planted in the city of Corinth. In first century Roman Empire, Corinth was a pretty big deal. Most historians would put it as one of the top five cities, very influential for trade and for the financial goings-on in Rome, as well as being a military outpost and part of the government being run from Corinth. And Paul had been going on these missionary journeys Once he came to Christ, once he was sent forth as an apostle, sent out into the world to spread the good news, he went on missionary journeys. And one of those journeys took him to Corinth, and he planted a church there. And this letter that we read today is a letter that he wrote to that church that he had planted to instruct them and to encourage them and to correct them in a few places. And the part that we're going to be reading today is sort of the crescendo of that letter. These last couple of chapters of the letter of 1 Corinthians really drive home the point that he is making. And so in verse 1, we read these words, Now, brothers and sisters, by extension, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. That's good news. By this gospel that he's going to remind them of, they were saved. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. There's a lot in this passage. I want to focus on a couple of verses right in the middle, verse 3 and verse 4. Because he says something in verse 3 that we don't want to read over, we don't want to miss. He says in verse 3 that he received something. And then he passed it on to them. He received the good news. He received the gospel. And he passed it on to them. And he passed it on to them as of first importance. The most important thing. Not first among equals, but above anything else. He passed on to them this good news, this gospel. And here are the components of that good news. First, that Christ died for our sins. And if he died for our sins, that means he came and lived for us. Christ came to us. He lived for us. And he brought life and light everywhere he went. And you can read all about it in the pages of the Gospels. And then he died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, it says. According to the Scriptures. Which means that he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant of the Law and the Prophets. It's all finding its fulfillment in the Gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection. 
He died for our sins. That means that he paid the penalty for our sins, not for his own sins. He lived a perfect, sinless life. There was no atonement needed for his life. His life was perfect and sinless, and he offered it as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, for your sins and my sins. And this is good news, but it doesn't stop there. We're told in verse 4 that Christ was buried. Christ was buried, and those closest to him believed that he was dead. They believed that the story was over. They believed that it was time to move on. We find his closest followers on fishing boats within a few days, thinking it's all over. But the story doesn't stop there either. And that final phrase of verse 4, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty on Easter morning. Nobody expected no body. They went there to anoint a body, not to discover an empty tomb. Nobody expected there to be no body, even though he had told them he was going to raise from the dead, even though he told them everything that was going to happen, and it happened exactly as he said. Nobody expected it. Don't miss that. We know this story, many of us. Know it inside and out. We've heard it over and over and over again. But when they walked away from Golgotha, when they laid him in the tomb on Friday, it was over in their minds. And the resurrection wonder that we see in the first followers of Christ needs to infect our own hearts as well because the tomb is still empty. The tomb is empty today. And in verses 5 through 8, he starts accounting for all the people that Christ appeared to, all the people that were witnesses of this resurrection that changes everything. He started appearing to people, to eyewitnesses of the resurrections, that they could tell what they have seen and heard. That's what witnesses do. If you see something happen, and it's important, and you get subpoenaed into court, they're not going to ask you what you think about X, Y, Z. They're going to ask you what you saw and what you heard, if you are a witness of an event. And these were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. These were witnesses of Jesus Christ conquering sin and death. And these witnesses start out, he appeared to the women who came to anoint the body. Then he appeared to Peter and John and who had rushed to the tomb. Then he appeared to all 12 of the disciples in the upper room. He appeared to over 500 of the brothers and sisters. And finally, to James and Paul. And I ran across something this week that that I had never really considered before. It's a quote from Charles Coulson. And he says this. Charles Coulson was a very high-ranking political figure. He was a high-ranking official in the Nixon administration. And he says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Furthermore, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? It's absolutely impossible. Now, if you've heard the name Charles Colson, but you're trying to place him, Charles Colson is the founder of Prison Fellowship. When he went to prison over the Watergate 
scandal. He came to Christ. He came forcefully to Christ. And he launched a ministry that is now in all 50 states. It's in dozens of countries around the world. It's in a thousand prisons, and it reaches over 360,000 people a year with the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing hope into dark places and saying the resurrection can change everything for you. It changed everything for Charles Colson. When he got a hold of the idea that the resurrection was a fact, that it happened, that it was real, it changed everything in his life, and it became the window through which he viewed all of life, and he gave the rest of his life, the next almost 40 years, to proclaiming the gospel and to taking the light of the gospel into the darkest places in this world. And I also want to focus on James and Paul. We, we, we read over that. James was the brother of Jesus. Think about that. And throughout the Gospels, James and his brothers didn't have a lot of kind things to say to Jesus. They didn't have a lot to do with his ministry, which kind of makes sense. I mean, think about it. How many of you have an older brother? What would your older brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Right? <laughs> James may be the best evidence that we have of the truth of the gospel because he believed and not only did he believe but he went all in he sold out he became the central figure of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James which is contained in our Bibles and then there's Paul then there's Paul who in the days after the resurrection Went around telling everybody it was a lie, telling everybody it was false, trying to put people in prison, trying to persecute this early church to keep it from getting off the ground, to keep it from gaining any momentum until he had his own encounter with Christ, until the resurrection changed everything in his heart, changed everything in his life and became the window through which he viewed everything else for the rest of his life. And he gave his life to planting churches and to growing those churches up and and to raising up leaders in those churches and launching Christianity and writing almost half of the New Testament as he did so. You see, the resurrection changed everything for James and for Paul. It changed everything for the witnesses, the apostles, the missionaries of the New Testament that are the reason that we're sitting here today, 2,000 years later, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, saying, Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. Because the resurrection changed everything. Now, a lot of religions have holidays. A lot of religions have holy days, they have holy seasons, they have festivals, they have different things at different times of their year. A lot of religions have central figures, and they have sacred texts, and they have holy men and women, and they have gods and goddesses, and they have prophets. They have holy cities, they have temples, they have many of the things that Christianity has. They have sites where miracles took place, and people go to those sites in order to pray, in order to experience something. But let me tell you something. No other religion has an Easter. No other religion has an Easter. No other religion has God taking on human form and seeking out his creation to save them, to redeem them. No other religion has the Word made flesh. No other religion has God coming and living among us. You see, Jesus is God. Scripture tells us authoritatively that everything was made in Him and through Him and for Him and by Him. 
And he came for us. No other religion has God willingly taking the place of those he came to save. Fulfilling both sides of the covenant. No other religion has God suffering and dying the death that we deserve. No other religion has God rising from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf forever. You see, Easter means a lot. And it means many, many things. Perhaps first among them, Easter means God is crazy for you. He's crazy for you. He goes to irrational lengths to prove his love for you, to redeem you, to bring you into his family. God is crazy about you. And Easter proves it. Easter means that God is pursuing you. Easter means that you are worth dying for. Not just the person next to you, the person in your seat. Easter means that you are worth dying for. Easter means that he'll stop at nothing to rescue you from sin and death. That it was unacceptable that you should be trapped in a life of sin and die a death and be separated from him for eternity. Easter means that the resurrection can change everything. Easter means that the resurrection can become the window through which you view all of life. The resurrection became the window through which you view God himself. The window through which you view yourself. The window through which you view every other person. Because not only are you worth dying for, but so is everyone you encounter. The resurrection proves it. The resurrection changes everything. And because of Easter, and because of the resurrection, everything can be forgiven. Everything can be cleaned and healed and made new. Easter proves that you can believe in him. You can receive him. You can become a part of the family of God. You can be made new. Because of Easter, you can live for him. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear death any longer. You can live for him, live completely sold out for him. Easter means that you can trust him. He proved once and for all that he is trustworthy. And Easter means that you can have a living hope in Christ. Not a dying hope, but a living hope in Christ. A hope that is rock solid and that death is not the end. Easter means you can be with him for eternity, that you can be resurrected, that you will no longer die and be separated from God. But if anyone believes in him, he will not perish, but will have everlasting life. But here's the deal. You have to respond to it. You have to respond in faith to this notion that the resurrection changes everything. And typically there are three responses to this reality that the resurrection changes everything. The first response is active rebellion. People who fold their arms and cross them and they have no part in it. They have nothing to do with it. They're not interested. They don't want to hear it. They're in active rebellion to this wonderful, wonderful truth. The second response is what we might call passive indifference. Passive indifference. Just shrug of the shoulders. And move on. But the third response, the third response is to eagerly embrace it. The third response is to wholeheartedly receive it. The third response is to surrender your life to this good news that Jesus Christ has lived. He has died. He was 
buried and he was raised from the death and that the resurrection can change everything in your life. And so today can be the day that you respond in faith if you've never done that. Today can be the day that you answer the question, has the resurrection changed everything in your life? Has the resurrection changed everything for you? Because it can. It can. So I would invite you to respond. To respond in faith. If the resurrection has changed everything, then your response is one of gratitude and praise. Celebration. If the resurrection has changed a few things, but it hasn't changed everything, then your response can be a response of surrender. Your response can be a response of saying, Lord, search me and know me and show me what is not yours and help me to surrender it to you. But if the resurrection hasn't changed anything in your life, then today can be the day that you receive the gift of new life in Christ. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you. First and foremost, we thank you for the good news that you came. You came for us. You lived. You lived for us. And you died for us. And we thank you that the story does not stop there. That the good news that we celebrate today is that the resurrection has changed everything. The resurrection makes all things new and can make all things new for us. So Lord, I pray for each person in this room. I pray for each person in this world that they would know and respond in faith to the good news that you are here, that you are with them, that you are for them. And for the one who came into this room not knowing, not knowing that the resurrection can change everything, Lord, I pray that they will respond in faith to the good news, that they will pray a simple prayer that says, Lord, I confess my need of you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Help me to live my life for you. I receive your gift of grace. I want to begin a relationship with you and follow you all the days of my life. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.